There can be few people in the world who are so famous for a job they haven't even started. When he does start, Prince Charles will be the 64th sovereign in a family line stretching back over a thousand years. He may not succeed to the job until he's over 70. Welcome to special coverage from Vanity Fair's Dynasty. About the coronation of Charles III. I'm Katie Nichol, Vanity Fair's royal correspondent. And I'm Erin Vanderhoof, staff writer at Vanity Fair, where I cover culture, books, music, and the British royal family. And here on Dynasty, we analyze the interplay of power and personality within this increasingly fractious family. And especially now, with so much on the line for the future of the British monarchy and the UK's place in the world. For the next few weeks, we'll be bringing you new episodes in the run-up to and just after the 6th of May coronation of King Charles III. In this episode, we're talking about the relationship between the Windsor family and the media and what it tells us about the hard job of maintaining a monarchy within a democracy. King Charles will be officially proclaimed Britain's new monarch at a meeting of the Accession Council at St. James's. More than 2,000 invitations were sent out this week for the service, which will the be The Stone held. of Destiny is being prepared for its special... The country and the world in the grip of royal fever. Well, not quite. When it the royal comes family to... can handle this, this kind of news. They just follow the Queen Mother's mantra, never complain, never explain, and they'll just be keeping quiet. So, Katie, how do you think royal coronations provide a window into this? We're really thinking of a once-in-a-lifetime moment. And of course, the media is absolutely vital to making that moment not just something for the British public, the home nation, but actually a spectacle for the rest of the world. Now, if you look at the hype around this coronation, and it has dominated a lot of the media coverage, page after page, we've been drip-fed lots of lovely new revelations and details about the coronation, from the, the quiche Lorraine to the music that's going to be played in the Abbey. And yet, fewer Brits have registered for street parties compared to the Queen's Platinum Jubilee celebrations. I think most people, certainly those that I've spoken to, are planning on using that extra bank holiday in May to make a getaway of it all. And rather than heading to central London, they're they're going somewhere else. A recent poll conducted by YouGov showed actually that most Britons don't really care about the coronation, which I would imagine can only make for worrying reading for the royals and their advisors. How do you think this is going to compare to the Queen's coronation? Well, Erin, I think Queen Elizabeth is a hard act to follow full stop. Now, if you think back to that moment on June the 2nd, 1953, it was a pivotal moment, not just for the monarchy, but for the country. From the farthest corners of the world, they have come to see the first lady of our nation journey in rich majesty to her crowning. The throb of excitement grows, for within the palace, the Queen prepares to ride to Westminster. And now to herald her, the trumpets ring out. The nation was gripped by this historic occasion, this beautiful young woman being crowned Queen. At this time, most people didn't have TV sets. Today, people are going to be watching this on their phones, on their iPads. They'll be streaming it on all sorts of multimedia platforms. Back then, people rushed out to buy their own TV set. And if you didn't have the money to do that, then you'd go and watch it with a neighbor or a family member or a friend, because this was the first time this sacred, historic ceremony was ever televised. And that in itself created a global phenomenon. And I think it's fair to say, sparked an interest in the young queen that continued for the rest of her very long life and very long successful reign. Thus elevated by the combined power of church and state, 
The queen moves to the throne to receive the homage of her princes and peers. So I've been doing a lot of research on this for a Vanity Fair article that's in the May issue. And I connected with Dr. Laura Clancy, who's a media theorist at the University of Lancaster. And she's also been a previous guest on Dynasty. Um, But in the past, she's written about how television worked to create a new kind of intimacy with the royal family and that television being a way you could see the royal family became so important to the bigger growth of television as a medium and for establishing ideas about like television being about emotional connection and trying to understand and like see and get to know the people you're seeing on the screen. We witnessed that emotional connection um, when she died. But I think when you talk about television and the connection that she created with her people, it continued through much of her life. And and certainly in the early years of her reign, that very, very important documentary, The Royal Family, which was filmed back in 1969, which did something that had never been done before and took the cameras behind palace walls into the lives of the royal family. So far, very few people have ever seen what the job entails. But now we can. We can follow the present queen through a year. Where shall we start? And of course, it was absolute dynamite. I interviewed shortly before his death, one of the key cameramen on that program, um, a lovely man called Philip Bonham Carter. And he couldn't believe the access that he was getting to the Queen and to the royal family. They were filming them at breakfast, filming them on shoots. (laughs) It did make for compelling, fascinating Mm. viewing, quite simply because we'd never seen the royal family like that. You cannot forget the great footage of Charles in that documentary. I think I came away from it. I feel like that's definitely one of the things that has made me like him more. (laughs) Yes, champion polo player and, you know, kind of all-round action prince, right? Which made him very appealing. We cannot know what Prince Charles will make of it. Over the centuries, his family has provided some sovereigns who will be remembered forever and a few who are best forgotten. But if he needs help... There is a thousand years of family experience to call on. And I think while the Queen was possibly unhappy that she perhaps lifted the veil too much on the mystique of monarchy, in many ways it did her and her family a great favour for exactly what you're saying. Because if you don't have that connection between a monarch and its people, then you don't have a relevance, you don't have a meaningfulness. And I think there's a big question mark and sense of uncertainty over that. Dr. Laura Clancy pointed out that everybody had such a huge emotional connection with Queen Elizabeth in a way that almost even sometimes made it hard for them to see her as like the head of an institution. And so the question that we've been talking about is, can Charles make that same connection with people? So far, I think it's really not the case, but maybe he can become the universal grandfather figure. I know that, you know, we have both talked a lot about seeing him in that role. Yeah, we we have. And Aaron, one of the things that sort of I'm reminded of as I'm as I'm listening to you now is when we started out making this series, Dynasty or Dynasty, um, you were not the king's biggest fan. Of course, he was just the Prince of Wales back then. But I I think, and forgive me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but I think you sort of wondered what his purpose was, what sort of a man he was. And as we went through making those episodes, you came to know far more about him. And I think almost ended up as a bit of a fan of of the king, right? I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge fan. I think that he's much more personable and human and even kind of like crotchety in the exact way that I want to see in a grandfatherly figure. Mm. I never really thought that he could be so human. 
Well, you don't sort of think of the royals as humans, but, you know, I think you're right. I think Charles is very human. He has great empathy. And I think he genuinely cares about the issues that are affecting everyday people in today's world. He's very in tune with the issues that affect, I think, particularly young people. But this Gen Z, this same generation, also, I think, have big issues and a big question mark over the royal family's vast wealth, the fact that Charles is worth billions, and yet didn't pay inheritance tax on his late mother's estate. That doesn't sit well with the younger generation. So Queen Elizabeth proved that the monarchy had to constantly evolve to keep up with the times and to stay relevant and indeed to stay popular. I think that's going to be the greatest challenge for our septuagenarian sovereign. Dynasty will be right back after this quick break. The Oscars are almost upon us, which means now is the time to start catching up on all of the buzz from this year's award season. I'm Katie Rich. I'm one of the hosts of Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast. Every week, we cover the ups and downs of the Oscar race, from Barbenheimer to the Golden Globes controversy, and much more. We also have weekly interviews with some of the year's biggest contenders, like Emma Stone. I mean, that's how you know you really love and trust and respect someone, is that we can absolutely fight. Paul Giamatti. It's like, holy f***. He just <laughs> nailed the f*** out of that, sorry. And America Ferreira. It's like yeah. people standing around for hours just waiting to like be a part of this cultural moment. Whether you're a Hollywood insider or just want to win your office's Oscar pool, listen to Little Gold Men, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. you've written a really fascinating essay about the royals and their very complex relationship with the media. Tell us a bit more about the research that you did and, and kind of what you found. I mean, everyone needs to go and read this article, but I'm curious, Aaron, tell, tell me about what you you found, what you found so interesting about it. Well, after Spare and Harry and Meghan, you know, I feel like I had this new appreciation for how frustrated even the royals themselves can be about that relationship. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the power struggles that play out in the press and on social media, but also whether or not Charles can change the relationship that his PR strategy has with the print media and with, you know, online media for a new era. So I really started by going back to the past and I learned a lot about just like the history of print media in the UK. It's different from the US from the very beginning. UK has always had a really big national print media network since the railroads because it was able to bring the newspapers to all parts of the country, which is something that only even kind of recently became possible in the US. And in the early days, you know, it was before celebrity culture really took off, before film culture really took off, royals were the main characters of the media alongside other aristocrats and wealthy people. And all of these people essentially had the experience of, you know, what we would now call clickbait journalism, you know, big, splashy, sensational headlines, you know, sometimes maybe a little misleading. And the idea behind it was that the press was supposed to be entertainment for common people, so it didn't really matter if it was true or not, that it was more about keeping them engaged and involved and less about trying to impart wisdom to them. Erin, we've talked a lot about how the royals have coped with being in that spotlight and with being 
constant tabloid fodder. Now, that infamous adage, never complain, never explain, it seems to have served certainly the late Queen well, and I think her parents before then. You've done a deep dive on this in your piece. Yeah. So never complain, never explain. We have talked about that, you know, from the very beginning of Dynasty. I think it was even the title of our first episode. It was about how the royals don't comment because you don't want to add fuel to the fire. And sometimes even acknowledging a story, if it's in a little outlet, means you're blowing it out of proportion and everyone's going to get to see it. So that's that's where we kind of, you know, use that in the 21st century. What I found is that it was surprisingly difficult to get to the absolute source of the adage, partially because it, you know, was a thing that a lot of different people were saying at different times, mainly in 19th century UK. Uh, Usually it's attributed to the former prime minister and novelist Benjamin Disraeli, and he was quoted saying multiple times that in politics he, you know, didn't ever like to complain about when people say mean things to him on the parliament floor or didn't have to explain his decisions because he had the power to do them. And it eventually became this, like, unofficial motto for a lot of different people. You know, it became an unofficial motto for the British Special Services. A lot of people would use it with never apologize because it's like apologizing shows weakness. Hmm. And so I think it's important to note that our current gloss on it, it was less about media theory, like how to make people see what they want to see in you or what you want them to see in you. And it was more in making the monarchy seem like it was just like too cool to bother with like the regular little stuff. It's it's almost like daylight in the magic that you're letting mm. daylight in by even acknowledging that the newspapers exist and that people care about your personal life. Well, of course, it was actually the late queen mother who really took that that philosophy to heart and, and I think paved the way for it to become perhaps the most important motto or saying of of the late Queen's life. It stood her certainly in good stead. And while she would read the press, I mean, she would read the Racing Post every morning, she'd never paid too much attention to the gossipy stories in the tabloids. She tended to avoid them. And actually, when you look back on her reign, there were only a handful of occasions when the Queen took legal action against the papers, accepted that good stories, bad stories, that media attention was just a part of her life. And I think she tried to find a way to just have as harmonious a relationship as she probably could with the British press. She believed in a free press and um, she, she, she managed that relationship or her advisors managed the relationship pretty well. I think it's telling that like the times that she's only done that legal action were times where people really were kind of incurring on, you know, it's like her employees. It's things like her private space that Hmm. it was being spied on, wasn't it? It was basically being spied on, whether that was by the media, by photographers. It was having that privacy that she valued so much, particularly when she was on her private estate. That was sacred to her. And I think Mm -hmm. anyone that crossed the line would be rightfully punished. Yeah. But I think it's it's also about power. I think that there is something in there that is important, that there are certain places where the constitutional monarch can't exert any power she wants at all. But the places where, you know, it is her job to run this house, it is her job to own this estate. Because I think one of the things that I was so surprised by is that the royal approach to the media changed so little from the 1930s to the 1980s. And even now, like I was reading complaints from royal correspondents in a press inquiry from the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And they were saying like, 
man, they're just not always consistent about, you know, when they're going to give us information and what things are private and when things are not. Like, that can be really frustrating. And it's like, oh, wow, I really, I've I've been there. I get that. But since then, so much has changed and it's really exploded in an unprecedented way. Yeah, I think that the 90s marked an absolute turning point. Um, Diana and the Wales's marriage and the disintegration of that marriage, that marked a, a watershed moment, I think, in, in the relationship between the palace and the press. But one of the things that I was also so surprised by, I found plenty of evidence from before 1980 that the competitive tabloid environment was changing rapidly in the 1970s too, and it was having a huge impact on the royals. Charles' romances were dissected to the you know, minute degree. And he and his siblings realized that the media was definitely affecting their ability to live their lives. For too long, the royals didn't take seriously enough that an unchallenged assertion is going to have a reputational risk because it's Mm. going to come back. I spoke to some people who do online-focused PR, and one of the things that they say is that they just don't suggest ignoring falsehoods anymore. In today's world of 24-7 news and Twitter and the many, many websites, one story that may originate as a news story can spiral and spiral and spread globally very, very quickly. And of course, if that's a story that's not true, then that has the potential to cause widespread damage. So... Yes, I think you're absolutely right. The attitude has changed towards just ignoring a story and hoping it will go away because those days of it being just a newspaper story and therefore tomorrow's fish and chip paper, (laughs) those days are well and truly gone. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think the relationship just got really contentious. That that is is one of the things that the family, I think, has really had a hard time dealing with. And, Hmm. you know, I think sometimes the royals focus way too much on short term, you know, can, will this, will this be forgotten once it's chip paper and not quite enough on how, you know, when something exists forever on the internet, it will come back eventually. And it's good to at least, you know, have your version of the truth out there so that you can say like, no, this is what happened. So how have you kind of seen that change happening in your years as a royal correspondent? I think things are changing. And I think that is because the palace realises that no comment doesn't mean that story is going to go away. It doesn't mean that story is going to be stamped out. You know, if, if the journalist has more than one source on it, is is is, is very sure on that story, with a no comment from the palace, it, it's likely to run with that no comment included somewhere, usually at the very end of the story. So I'm thinking of a recent story in the mirror about the coronation. It was a front page story about how rehearsals have run behind times, that um, everyone is really quite ill prepared, that the king and the queen haven't even done a proper dress rehearsal at the Abbey. And basically, the coronation's going to be um, a bit of a mess because no one is actually really fully prepared. Um, and this was a front page story and, and, and spread across several pages of, of the paper inside. And really, at the bottom of the, of the story is, is a palace denial. So I think we are seeing perhaps more denials coming out of the palace. And, and we're certainly seeing the royals answering back themselves and and taking matters into their own hands. And I'm thinking of William and I'm thinking of various occasions where he has stood up and and spoken out. Last year, after Lord Dyson's report into the Panorama interview with with Bashir and Diana um, and, and the wrongdoings that had taken place, William stood outside of Kensington Palace and denounced the BBC, the the illicit practices that had taken part. Let's just listen to a clip of what he said. I would like to thank Lord Dyson and his team for the report. It is welcome that the BBC accepts Lord Dyson's findings in full. 
which are extremely concerning, that BBC employees lied and used fake documents to obtain the interview with my mother, made lurid and false claims about the royal family, which played on her fears and fueled paranoia, displayed woeful incompetence when investigating complaints and concerns about the programme. Public service broadcasting and a free press have never been more important. These failings, identified by investigative journalists, not only let my mother down and my family down, they let the public down too. It was William who wanted to give that impromptu press conference. And it's not the only time that he's sort of taken on the press or an institution and, and made a point. Um, he also addressed the criticism that he and Kate received during their 2022 tour to the Caribbean. Um, he, he issued a statement saying that he knew that this tour had brought into even sharper focus the questions about the past and the future of the Commonwealth. We support with pride and respect your decisions about your future. Relationships evolve, friendship endures. He wasn't shying away from it. He wasn't going to not make a comment about the criticism that he'd received in the in the press, in the local newspapers, and over some of those, um, you know, perhaps ill-advised photo opportunities. You know, no comment simply wasn't going to wash for William. He wanted to make a comment. Mm -hmm. He wanted to tackle it head on. And one of the most notable moments where William has spoken out in, you know, maybe an unexpected way, but because he felt like it was a thing he needed to do was back in March of 2021 when there was a suggestion that the royal family was racist. And he was the first to hit back in, in a very vocal way. He said, we are very much not a racist family. Yes, we'll be touching on that a little bit later on, but we'll be right back after this short break. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker and host of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast. On the podcast, I ask a great contemporary writer to select a favorite story from the magazine's almost 100-year archive to read and discuss. Together, we delve into the story, exploring its themes, its style, and what makes fiction work. You can listen to authors like Otessa Moshfeg talk about why we write. Story, or attaching a story or creating a story, is this inclination that we all have to stop spinning. And you can hear writers like George Saunders discuss the nature of storytelling. On the first read, you accept these things as descriptions and they make you see the scene, but every line is a chance to inflect the reader's mind. You'll discover new favorite authors and read old favorites in new ways. Episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast are released on the first of every month. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. When you consider the many stories written about them and their private lives, it's actually very rare for the royals to pursue the media through the courts. But Prince Harry has been the anomaly. And I'm not in this for self-preservation. I'm in this to be able to say, draw a line, enough. We can all move on and get on with our lives. But if this continues, then I'm naturally deeply concerned that what has happened to us will happen to someone else. In fact, he's taken on the media with numerous lawsuits. 
The Sussexes have successfully sued numerous paparazzis and agencies for invading their and their children's privacy. The Duchess of Sussex recently won a copyright case after the Mail on Sunday published excerpts of a private letter to her father. And Harry, we know, has been in the High Court recently in an attempt to sue associated newspapers over alleged phone hacking. The newspaper group deny carrying out any illegal practices. Harry is really attacking on every front. And you also realize that he's allying himself with the people in the organizations who feel like the aftermath of the Levinson report and the phone hacking scandal about a decade ago just didn't cause enough positive change in Britain's news media. So he's he's coming at it from just a very different ideological place than his family is. And I think it's also telling that he is starting to do somewhat similar work in the U.S. You mentioned paparazzi. Some of those are based in the U.S. But also he has joined a campaign against racist hate speech on social media with the group Color of Change. And he even joined a research commission on misinformation with the Aspen Institute, which is this, you know, like think tank in the U.S. He's really trying on many different fronts to express that frustration with the news media. Yes, and he certainly wants to eradicate any misinformation or false news, but there is an irony in all of this. Harry hates the media, yet he continues to fuel the tabloids with stories. Just look at Spare. And actually going back to Oprah and what we were talking about earlier, Erin, arguably Harry and Meghan in that interview put the royal family at the centre of one of the most damaging stories, certainly that I can remember, Hold up, hold up. There's Stop several right now. There are several conversations. There's a about conversation it. with you. With Harry. About how dark your baby is going to be? Potentially, and what that would mean or look like. Ooh. That allegation put the royal family at the center of a terrible racist row, the repercussions of which I think are still being felt. Some might say that Harry, who campaigns for accurate information in the media, was himself guilty of spreading misinformation. He now claims that he and Meghan were not accusing the royal family of racism, but unconscious bias. Hmm, Erin, how do you view that one? Well, I think it's really funny when the tabloids the next day were going with who's the royal racist, which, oof, always has icked me out so much. I actually wound up writing even the next day, like, I don't think that they said there was a racist royal. I think they said that, you know, somebody said an insensitive comment about Meghan behind her back, which made her feel like she was being attacked. As a person of color myself, you know, I think that there are a lot of different layers to this, and I feel like one of the problems sometimes in talking about this in Britain is that there is a tendency to kind of like jump to, oh, okay, so who's the racist? What's the racist? I think it was definitely not a great idea of Meghan and Harry to like let that narrative go for longer. You know, I think two years later is like a little bit late to just be clarifying li- what you a, say. Just a little bit late. Just they, listen, a they, bit. they had ample opportunity to correct it when that story yeah. took on a well, life of its own. What do you re- what do you correct? I mean, I think you can't say, like, maybe you come out and say, like, oh, the the tabloid gloss on a very specific thing that I said that I don't want to say more about because then you're going to ask me more questions about who said it. I don't know what they could have done, but but still, you know, something should have happened. What I have been trying to understand more is, like, why did the royals let the media set their own agenda in that moment? 
I don't know. Well, I, I think, think that's well, really I think, difficult. I think they, they they did what they could do. I mean, it was Harry and Meghan that had made this allegation. The royal family was then put in a position where it had to defend itself, which it which it did well, with did that it, statement. Did it have to defend itself? Well, they didn't. They tried to they tried to put an end to the narrative with that very short but succinct statement from the Queen. And then when William was asked if the royal family were a racist family, he responded and tackled that head on. And, and can you just let me know: is the, the royal family a racist family, sir? I think the hope in doing that was that they would bring an end to that narrative. The people who really could have brought an end to it were Harry and Meghan, who could have and should have come in and said, actually, this has been misinterpreted and this is what they meant, which is what they said, as you pointed out, two years later to Tom Bradby. I think that this kind of goes back to our so many of our big frustrations when we're talking about the relationship with the royals and the media is because we know a lot about what happens, but we rarely hear it from them specifically. And I think that that's why Meghan and Harry wanted to actually get on the record and say that. Well, they've they've certainly they've certainly taken their opportunity to to tell their side of the story, both in their Netflix docuseries and of course in in Spare, where where Harry was jaw droppingly honest and we will have to wait and see um again the irony being that he gave the media an absolute field day i mean they filled their boots with those (laughs) jaw-dropping revelations right yeah he broke a breach of trust with his family in doing that book which i'm not sure he'll ever recover that said the king has done the magnanimous thing he has made sure that his youngest son will be there at his coronation we know that harry's going to be there it'll be a fleeting visit He'll be in and out and he won't be joined by the Duchess because, of yeah. course, it's Archie's fourth birthday. So yeah. we will we will have attendance by Prince Harry, but I think Blinken, you'll miss him because he's not going to be around for too long. We talked a bit earlier about the press coverage in the run-up to the coronation, but how do you think the palace has handled their whole public relations strategy over the last few months? Well, I think we're seeing the palace do what it does best, which is to put the world's attention on a very important event. And they've been excellent at drip-feeding the media bits of information ahead of the coronation in order to get maximum coverage because that is what they want. There have been stories about the coach, the golden coach that's going to be used, the music that's going to be played in the Abbey, the ethically sourced anointing oil, um, and fascinatingly, of course, who's been invited and who hasn't. Many peers and, and many dukes and duchesses and lords and ladies are not going to be going to this scaled Back coronation, all part of the cost-cutting and, and mindful of a cost-of-living crisis. But I was surprised to see that Joe Biden won't be going. We know the First Lady will be there to represent him. But um, has that gone down in the States that he's not going to be there? Obviously, he had a very successful trip to Ireland. Why is he not coming back? He loves Britain so much. <laughs> you know, we're talking on the day that he announced that he's running for re-election. And, you know, there are a lot of, like, kind of really big, important things that are happening in Congress over the next few months. Like, it seems kind of not the right look to take days out of governing for, uh, you know, like a religious ceremony across the sea, uh, you know, across the Atlantic. So I think that that I think that really is kind of where that's coming from. Well, that hasn't put off President Emmanuel Macron of France, who will be coming over. Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the EU Commission, will also be here. And of course, we can expect a big turnout from foreign royals from around the world. Prince Albert of Monaco and his wife, Princess Charlene, 
King Felipe and Queen Leticia of Spain, um, the King and Queen of Norway, um, King Philippe and Queen Matilda of Belgium, they will all be there. And many of so whom it, are Charles' distant cousins, yes. <laughs> it, many of whom are Charles' distant cousins. So everything that you would expect, even the King of Tonga is coming. And I think, you know, that sort of royal presence is, is really going to make it an occasion befitting of something of this status. This is the coronation of the king. And I do wonder if perhaps some of those who are thinking about not tuning in, not wanting to wake up over on the other side of the Atlantic in the middle of the night to tune in and watch this, will perhaps have a a bit of a change of heart at the 11th hour and just think, actually, let's just tune in and see what all the hype is about. Mm -hmm. What do you think that we've already learned about how the relationship between the media and palace is changing in Charles's reign? Well, I think at the moment we're seeing a, a pretty harmonious relationship between the media and the palace. The The media have gotten very much behind King Charles III and crucially behind Queen Camilla. We now know from the coronation invites that, that she will be known as Queen Camilla from the coronation onwards. I mean, decades ago, that was simply something that was unthinkable. And, you know, Camilla was the reviled mistress as far as every single British tabloid newspaper was concerned. So compared to to years ago, the relationship now I think is is a good one. I think it is pretty smooth, pretty seamless. And I think some of those more recent negative stories around Charles, um, his 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 aide, Michael Fawcett, who has been dismissed over the Cash for Honours scandal involving the Prince of Wales and his charity, all of that just seems to have disappeared. You know, the palace machine is now dominating the news cycle with the coronation. But how long can this continue? And is it enough to keep the public interested? Well, I I for one know that I am very, very fascinated and will be tuning in. And I am always so thankful to get to hear your perspective from, you know, from across the pond. And from thank Blighty. you so much for this conversation, Katie. No, it's a pleasure. And I can't wait to watch the coronation with you this weekend, Erin. I'll be covering it for the Today Show on NBC and dipping in and out of coverage um, with the BBC, but of course, reporting for you for Vanity Fair. And I cannot wait to dissect it with you in the next episode. Same here. We want to know your thoughts on the coronation of King Charles III. How will you be marking the event? What did you think of it? What kind of king will Charles be? Record a voice memo on your mobile and email it to dynasty at vanityfair.com. And we might include your voice in the next episode. This has been special coverage from Vanity Fair's Dynasty. I'm Katie Nichol. And I'm Erin Vanderhoof. Dynasty is produced by Vanity Fair and Condé Nast Entertainment. This episode was produced by Will Coley. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. We had engineering assistance from Jake Loomis and Bob Malloroy. The theme song was composed by Wooly Music. Dynasty was conceived by Vanity Fair executive editor Claire Howarth. Claire and Katie Rich are our staff editorial consultants. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Dynasty wherever you get your podcasts and also online at vf.com forward slash dynasty. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, I'm going to say something that might get some of my, you know, countrymen a little upset, but long live the king. And if you are watching this video, 
either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.